Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. A lot to discuss this week as we go into pretty much the end of summer, making the most of it, hoping you are doing the same. But we start on the ice, we start with the antithesis of summer, and we'll talk about a couple of NHL signings here. First off, the Calgary Flames signing Nazem Kadri, finally someone signing Nazem Kadri, to a seven-year, $49 million deal. It's $7 million a year. Maybe a bit of an overpay as you know he'll be well into his 30s by the time that deal is up, but it is probably a deal that that they needed to make. Calgary, of course, losing their top two players in Johnny Goudreau and Matthew Kachuk in this offseason. But the Kachuk deal, of course, they got a boatload back. They probably won that deal considering they got Mackenzie Weger, they got Jonathan Huberto, they got picks. It was a great deal for Calgary. Now, I don't know if I could say that they are a more talented team, but Calgary, I I think now, is a more experienced and a deeper team. You have a guy in Nazem Kadri who won the Stanley Cup last year, who had a lot of playoff experience even before then, scored the OT winning goal in Game 4 to put Tampa Bay on the brink of elimination. So he's a fine player. He can get in guys' heads. He's a bit of an instigator at times. And it's, it's a very good, very good move for them. When they bring in Huberto, it's another guy who has, who was a great leader in the locker room, who alongside Alexander Barkov was a big leader for Florida. He finally got to play, he finally got to win a playoff series this past year. And it's the, it's the first time Florida had won a playoff series in a long, long time since they had actually been to the Stanley Cup Final in 1996, as a matter of fact. And not, not to mention he's a top scorer. He had... Over 100 points, I very well could have argued he should have been the league's most valuable player last year. So Calgary, in terms of intangibles, I think they got way better. And it's not always the best team or the most talented team that wins the Stanley Cup. Very very, very often, it is, it is not the most talented team that wins the Stanley Cup. It's the team that figures it out, gets things together, and has the right guys in the room, plays better than the sum of its parts. So uh, a good move there for Calgary. Carolina Hurricanes making another interesting move. Hurricanes signing Paul Stastny to a one-year deal worth $1.5 million. Stastny, even though he was drafted 17 years ago, had 45 points last year with Winnipeg. Starting to play on the lower lines. He is not the guy he was necessarily in St. Louis or Colorado. But uh, seriously, though, a 17-year vet, 800 career points. He's been successful pretty much anywhere, everywhere he has gone. Played with Colorado, played with the Blues, played with Vegas, played with Winnipeg, and those teams were all contenders for the Stanley Cup at some point. And they they all played well into the postseason. He has not won the Stanley Cup yet. Paul Stastny has never won the Stanley Cup, but he's had some deep runs. He's a guy who you probably see deep in the postseason many a year. Of course, he's hockey royalty from the other Paul Stasny to Anton Stasny, Peter Stasny. And so he, he's been a, a fine, fine hockey player. A guy that Carolina could really use. guy who could bring in some depth scoring, which the Hurricanes need badly. They lost 
like half their defensive core pretty much. They changed out half their defensive core. They're really going veteran heavy as they go to guys like Max Pacioretty and Brent Burns, guys who are, you know, they're, they're going all in. They're going all in right now. It's, it's a very, very small window, I think it might be, for many of these guys for Carolina. And so this is the year for them. They pushed the Rangers to the brink of elimination multiple times. In that second round series, I thought they were going to win the Stanley Cup. They surprised a lot of people. Well, really, the Rangers surprised a lot of people. But the Hurricanes were rather disappointing in the at, at, in the end of that second round series. They did not win a road game in the entire postseason. And not to mention, a lot of teams got better. So it's it's going to be an interesting one for Carolina, but that's a guy who will make a huge difference. The New York Islanders re-upping their younger guys. They re-signed Noah Dobson to a three-year deal. That's going to be very important because we, we talk about the Islanders now as that, that's kind of a team at the back end of what Carolina has right now where the Islanders have a lot of guys who are veterans. They're a very old team. They made it to the conference final in back-to-back years and but did not reach the final. It, this past year, they very well could have reached the playoffs if not for so many players getting COVID and the, the fact that they didn't have a home game until I think about 13 games in as they were opening the new arena at UBS on the island. It's supposed to be lovely, by the way. But they're relying a lot on their defensive core. You look at Dobson, you look at Pelican Pollock. That is going to be, those are going to be the pieces that keep this team together for a while. They also signed uh, Alexander Romanov to a three-year deal, and they signed Kiefer Bellows to a one-year deal. The Islanders had acquired Romanov from Montreal on draft night, and they, in return, gave away the number 13 pick. Romanov, 19 points on 133 career games, but obviously they see something in him there. Kiefer Bellows had 19 points in 45 games played last season. Now we move on to the NFL, and there are a number of things to discuss. Of course, we want to talk about Deshaun Watson. That's that's one of the biggest stories, but I, I want to talk for a minute about uh, Len Dawson. Unfortunately, Len Dawson passed away at the age of 87. He was in hospice care. If you are younger, you might not know Len Dawson, and if you're, if you're maybe a more casual fan, you might not look, know Len Dawson, but for how much people do and should appreciate Patrick Holmes, he's you know as talented as any player, let alone quarterback, quarterback, let alone player in the game today, Len Dawson did about as much for the Kansas City Chiefs organization as any player. He is one of, if, the, if not the best player in the history of the organization, up there with guys like Buddy Bell, Derek Thomas, Buck Buchanan, Willie Lanier, a number of fine players for the uh, Tony Gonzalez, a number of fine players for the Kansas City Chiefs. I can put Jan Stenerud up there as well. So uh, Dawson uh, was is out of his misery. Fortunately, he was in hospice. So Len Dawson was a is is a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. First off, he was the NFL's Man of the Year in 1973. At that point, of course, Walter Payton did 
did not play in the league, so it was not the Walter Payton Man of the Year award at that point, but it was the NFL Man of the Year. The highlight of his career, leading the Kansas City Chiefs to an upset of the Minnesota Vikings in Super Bowl IV, 23-7. It is a game that goes rather overlooked because the Jets had upset the Colts the year before, and that was the game that kind of proved the legitimacy of the AFL, that it could compete with the NFL. But this was the game that rather solidified it, not to mention this was the last ever game played by an AFL team. It was the next year that it officially became the AFC and the leagues were folded into each other. So Len Dawson was actually the last AFL winning quarterback. This is a game that is is rather underrated, and not to mention... You know, the Kansas City Chiefs, of course they had a 50-year championship drought, but they are considered one of the NFL's premier franchises because of their venue, their fans, a number of their players, despite going for, for such a long drought. And that is in, you know, that Len Dawson created a lot of that. Dawson in that game threw one touchdown, threw it to Otis Taylor, stiff-armed a man down the sideline, and went in. Dawson was named the game's MVP, one of only two, of course, Kansas City players, quarterbacks, let alone players, to win Super Bowl MVP, the other, of course, being Patrick Mahomes. In addition, he valiantly led the Chiefs to Super Bowl One. They lost that game. It was, it was actually a blowout. They lost 35-10 to to the Green Bay Packers. However, that game was actually 14-10 Green Bay at halftime. It was a much closer game, and Kansas City put up more of a fight than people actually realize. Not to mention, you look at the Vikings, that's a tough team to beat. That was a a trend-setting game, because the Vikings are... I've I've considered this, actually. I I was was kind of just spitballing a couple of weeks ago, just, just thinking of things a couple of weeks ago, and I wondered, within the major four sports leagues, so MLB, NFL, NBA, NHL... What is the best team never, what is the best organization never to win a championship? And I realized that it would either be the Minnesota Vikings or the Buffalo Bills. This is for any sport, they just happen to be both in the NFL, because those are the two teams to reach a championship round four times, but never win. And then the Vikings, I believe, were probably a little better because I believe the, they reached the conference championship game more times. The Vikings, this was their first of four Super Bowl losses, all under the great Bud Grant. Three of those later under Fran Tarkington. Those were the, the two guys who really joined the organizations together. And of course, the, the Purple People Leader defense, which is one of the most lethal of uh, one of the most lethal front fours of all time, along with uh, Jim Marshall, Alan Page, Carl Eller. This was a dangerous, dangerous team. But it was also a team that just couldn't win the big one. And so this was a, a huge game. This was the first time this was a significant game in the history of the NFL, a game that's rather overlooked, that Super Bowl. Now, in addition, Dawson, just kind of going backwards here, Dawson started in the AFL in 1962 I believe it was the only year, as a matter of fact, that the Chiefs were still the Dallas Texans. 
and then Lamar Hunt ultimately moved the team, but it was the only year that he was there when they were the Dallas Texans, Len Dawson. He won the AFL's MVP award in 1962, his first season after jumping from the NFL. He only has one Pro Bowl appearance as as a player. However, it wasn't until 1970 when the leagues ultimately merged or prior to 62 when he left, so anywhere between 57 and 61, that he was even eligible to play in the Pro Bowl, so 70 to 75. So the prime of his career was rather cut off. In his prime, though, he was a six-time AFL All-Star. He led the league in touchdowns four times, and I will remind you that the AFL was much more of a high-flying passing league. When you look at Joe Namath, Len Dawson, and you look at the time, you know, George Blanda, Daryl LaMonica, it was much more of a high-flying passing league than the NFL was at the time. It, it really helped bring a larger... It, it helped emphasize offense a lot more within the NFL, the AFL did. And Len Dawson was one of those guys who did that. His number 16 was retired by the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, by today's standards, his numbers his numbers might not be incredibly impressive, but you also have to remember that they only played about 14 games at the time, and you can also say that his first six years in the NFL, he was a backup for, for most of that. He played for, or rather, five years. His first five years in the NFL, he was essentially a backup. He started out with the Pittsburgh Steelers, for three years, he actually, this is how tough it was, he was briefly on a roster, Johnny Unitas, was, Johnny Unitas was cut by the Steelers before he ever played it down, and then he went to the Colts. Bobby Lane had also been traded from the Lions to the Steelers, that of course led, created the quote-unquote curse of Bobby Lane, the, you know, the, the reasoning why the Lions have not won a championship or even been to a championship game, I, I believe, since Bobby Lane's trade. But think about that. If you're Len Dawson, you have Johnny Unitas and Bobby Lane, two guys who combined for, I think, five or six total championships. And Johnny Unitas, I would say, a guy on the Mount Rushmore of quarterbacks. He was on a roster with those two guys. And so, of course, you know, you'd struggle at some point to, to find a starting spot. He played for the Steelers for three years. Dawson hailed from Alliance, Ohio, which is kind of eastern, central eastern Ohio kind of between Cleveland and Youngstown, or Cleveland and Pittsburgh. He then played, after three years with the Steelers, played with the Browns for two years, 1960 and 61, was never really a starter with any of these teams, and then ultimately made a very difficult decision, I would think, if you come from East Ohio, left, not only left the Cleveland Browns, his, essentially his hometown team, he's about 50, he was about 50 miles away, but then not only left the Cleveland Browns, but changed leagues, went to the AFL when it was still pretty much in its infancy, it was in its third season, and signed with the then Dallas Texans, wins the MVP in his first year. He is still the all-time leader in passing yards, touchdowns, and wins for the Kansas City Chiefs. For his career, and again, I will say as I've gone off into this tangent, for his career, remember they, for the first five years, he wasn't really a starter. And 
you know, that, then things kind of tailed off at the end. Plus, they only played 14 or even, I believe, 12 games for much of that time. So, for his career, 239 touchdowns, 183 interceptions. That's a fairly good ratio, I can say, at least. And for his career, 28,711 passing yards. Again, all still records in Chiefs lore. There was never really a quarterback to compare to him. I, I know they had Joe Montana for two years, and Joe Montana is a top-two quarterback of all time and was the best quarterback to that point. But again, you remember he only played there for two years at the end of his career. Even though he led them to the AFC Championship game, he was only there for two years. So the Chiefs have kind of struggled at quarterback. Between Dawson and Mahomes, there's not... I mean, Trent Green was, was good, but between those two guys... There wasn't really much to talk about. So a major, major player in the history of the organization. Now, what I did not realize is what he did off the field. He was a media personality, a major media personality in Kansas City and throughout the NFL for many years. I, I had not realized that he hosted inside the NFL for 24 years. As a matter of fact, I watched, you know, my, and my house will watch sometimes the CBS Sports Network simulcast of Boomer and Geo, which is a great uh, sports talk show here in New York. Boomer Esiason, of course, longtime NFL quarterback of 14 years. And so Greg Giannotti, his co-host, said he didn't really know, at least when he was younger, much about Len Dawson's career. He didn't know he was a player. He just knew him for being the host of Inside the NFL. So that shows how impressive his post-playing career was. Hosted the Inside the NFL for 24 years. Not to mention, he became KMBC-TV, Kansas, uh, Kansas City Television. He became that station's sports director while he was a player. Not just while he was a player, before he ever won a Super Bowl, before he ever played in a Super Bowl, in 1966, he worked there full-time, apparently was an anchor there, I had no idea, worked there full-time for 43 years. And on top of that, he served as the Chiefs radio color analyst for 32 years, up until only five years ago at the age of 82. And so, Len Dawson, a salute to you, a life well-lived and forever grateful is Kansas City, Missouri, and the surrounding area. Unfortunately, though, this week, when it comes to NFL quarterbacks, we could not only appreciate and celebrate the long and amazing life of Len Dawson, but there is another quarterback that, unfortunately, we need to discuss, and that is Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson has been suspended 11 games, following the NFL's appeal, find $5 million, which will be donated to charity. And I don't know what charity. I'm very much, I honestly think it should be donated to battered women's, shelter, battered women's shelters and rape crisis centers in Houston and Cleveland, most notably. That would make the most sense. It's the only way you could have some semblance of, I don't know, respect, whatever, some semblance of appreciation for 
for abused women out of all of this, because 11 games and $5 million, especially for this guy, is nothing. He will not play the remainder of the preseason, although I, if I were Cleveland, I think I'd just, pl- I'd just play him every snap for the rest of the way if he's not going to play until you know, November. And then, strangely enough, he's set to return his, his first game back if Cleveland chose to play him back, but is play him then, but his first game where he's eligible to return is in Houston against the Texans. So that's frankly incredible. Then again, so is a guy getting suspended 11, 11 games and fined $5 million out of a, you know, multi, you know, hundred plus million dollar contract when he's accused of assault or some sort of sexual misconduct by 30 women. You know, I, I did the math and it turns out if you're Deshaun Watson, it only costs about one third of a game and about $167,000 per sexual assault. That's right. That's that. That's all. That's all it's worth. And I'd like to point out, not to say he shouldn't have, but Calvin Ridley got suspended for a full year for gambling. For gambling, he got he got suspended for a full year, and there wasn't any proof that he was throwing games necessarily either. You know, and then we. I say this as a baseball fan, but I'm also the fact that, but again, it's a different league. The fact that Pete Rose is banned for life for gambling is just, I don't, but that's a bit beside the point. But Calvin Ridley got suspended for a full year for gambling, and Deshaun Watson got suspended 11 games for as many as 30 sexual harassments, sexual assaults, whatever you want to call it. Even a, and look, I don't, I don't know how much evidence you could possibly find, but even a female judge only said he should be suspended for six games. You know, I can't really fault the NFL, and people, of course, have faulted the commissioner in the past and faulted the league for perhaps abusing power, overstepping its or his or their bounds. But I can't really fault the NFL in this instance because I think they knew that they had that reputation, and so they at least deferred to a neutral arbitrator for the first judgment. And even their choice the second time still was probably too lenient as this arbitrator decided it was 11 games. But I think they also ultimately did this because the NFL Players Association just has too much power. Because, you know, you you go back to this and look, this is ultimately, really, this is an issue about, it's an issue about women or or any victims, really, male, female, non-binary, whatever, of sexual misconduct of any kind. But another aspect of this is that these are political games. So it's not, like the NFL Players Association, I think ultimately has too much power here because they could ultimately sue. Think about, you know, five years ago when Major League Baseball didn't give the Astros a harsher punishment pretty much because of the looming threat from the Major League Baseball Players Association, despite overall player dissatisfaction. 
Now, again, obviously, cheating on baseball games is absolutely nothing in comparison to sexual violence. But the point still stands that at, that at any given point, whether it's the owners or, uh, or the league or any given players association, it's both sides here, the wrong side will have too much power. Even Trevor Bauer, I will say, that, that that's, that's another crazy thing. Trevor Bauer received a two-year-long suspension, 324 games, based on one accusation. Now, there was an accusation that seemed uh, warranted. It seemed like there was evidence behind it, based on, at least on their textual exchange between Bauer and the alleged victim. But Bauer got suspended 324 games based on one accusation, while Watson is suspended 11 games. I know it's, you know, baseball is a much longer season than football, but still 11 games, which is, you know, two-thirds of one season, two-thirds of one regular season, 11 seventeenths of a season, over 30 accusations. And so I again mentioned that, you know, Bauer's sole accuser had textual proof in the, of the encounter, but 30 women can't be wrong. You can't have 30 women come out against you and all be wrong. And on top of this, Watson and his agent pretty much came out and said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm working on myself. Really? You couldn't have said this sooner? You continued to, to, to plead innocence until your guilt is proven and, assault, and ultimately you didn't get the punishment that you deserved? Well, the truth is, the, the fact that he's even on a football field is insane. The fact that he is, you know, that he has not been sued even more or even had criminal charges against him is absolutely outrageous. It's a statement not only on, you know, football and on athletes, but it's a statement on society, ultimately. It's just so incredibly disappointing. And I can tell you this, I, well... I hope that these accusers ultimately have some sort of closure here, even if it's not sufficient punishment. That's the, that's the most important thing that these that the accusers have closure, the alleged victims. But I can tell you, if you want to see if you want to see some hatred. Get ready for either week 12, week 13 in Houston. Because if, look, it's, you know, he'll probably get booed enough if he's going to play in you know, Seattle, Seattle or somewhere like that. But when he goes to play in Houston and the way he betrayed the trust of that organization, the way he betrayed the trust of that fan base, it's going to be very, very intense. So I... Just very disappointed in, in the way all of this has worked out, but ultimately it's just a microcosm of a lot of terrible things that have happened. There are a couple of uh, injuries to talk about from this uh, past week, first or past two weeks. First off, Giants edge rusher Kayvon Thibodeau, who was uh, selected fifth overall this year out of Oregon, has a sprained MCL. He's expected to be out only three to four weeks. It was very concerning. As a matter of fact, I heard on the radio that he was down, holding his knee, and of course you can you think the worst, but 
Fortunately, he will be fine. Team, the team hopes to actually have him back somehow by opening day in Nashville. The Giants will face off against the Tennessee Titans in Nashville on opening day. And worst case scenario for them, they probably get him back second or third week, perhaps. Also in the NFC East, the Washington Commanders, and this one might be even bigger, Chase Young, unfortunately, will be out for the first four games. He will be placed on the reserve slash physically unable to play list. Really tough one for Washington, who's got one of the most dangerous front fours in the league. They'll be relying heavily on them, especially with the uncertainty of Carson Wentz as he joins the organization. How much will the offense be able to do behind him as opposed to someone like Kyle Allen or Ryan Fitzpatrick or Taylor Heineke? And one more. Again, it's just defense. It J.C. Jackson, corner who was a stud with the New England Patriots, signed by the Chargers this offseason. He will miss two to four weeks after ankle surgery, so... Hopefully that won't be too long, but just a big trend of major injuries on the defensive end late in the summer. And there is one more one more NFL note I actually want to discuss. It's not necessarily bad news. I, th- I think it's kind of a, an interesting story. Seahawks linebacker Shaquem Griffin has retired after four seasons in the league, or former Seahawk, and then he was on the Dolphins practice squad this past year. Of course, most notable for being the first one-handed player drafted into the NFL. Twin brother Shaquille, now playing for the Jacksonville Jaguars, playing corner. And I highly encourage you to read the Players' Tribune article where Griffin announced his retirement. And I can only emphasize that it's announcing his retirement from playing. It's a very, very sweet, very thoughtful essay where he said he essentially did not want to play unless it was with his brother at that point. They're both from Florida, and so Shaquem had been cut by the Seahawks was pretty much on their practice squad and just trying to fight his his way onto the roster. Eventually ended up with the Dolphins. Didn't play an actual down with them. Was just on their practice squad. And eventually said, look, said to his agent, look, if there's not a spot on the Jaguars, where his brother has just joined, he, he just doesn't want to play anymore. Which is... Rather sad, and he didn't have that impressive a career statistically. Of course, it is a major accomplishment that he could not only make it to the NFL, but be drafted into the NFL. Despite having only one hand, he had his he had one of his hands amputated when he was very young. But he, you know, rightfully, and this is this tends to be a statement echoed throughout the community of people with disabilities that he does not want people to feel sorry for him. And he also doesn't want people to think of him first and foremost because of his 
you know, his, his lack of a hand, the fact that he only has one hand. People don't, he doesn't want people to think of him, first thing you think of him is that he only has one hand. But just what he's done as a person, ultimately he is a person. And so, he has done something very positive. I did not know really about this, but he joins the NFL Legends community, which is an actual organization. It is not just, you know, a general term. The NFL Legends community is an actual organization, which apparently helps mentor its former players who help mentor either former players and or current players who may be later on in their careers regarding a couple of things. First off, retirement from playing, so their post-playing careers, as well as mental health issues. Now, you know, we talked about, a lot of people have talked about the league and the correlation, perhaps, between football and mental health issues, but it's nice to see that they are addressing this in some way, that they have some sort of group of people who can lean on each other. And so to have Griffin in there, obviously, he's a very smart, very thoughtful person, and so I think he'll fit in very well there. If you read the uh, th- this piece in the Players' Tribune, he talks about how playing football ultimately was plan B, and how plan A starts now. It's a very, very thoughtful way of putting it, and I'm, I'm very glad that he's able to find, you know, perhaps even more purpose in his post-playing career. One significant note in the college football world, that is that Nick Saban has signed an eight-year, $93.6 million deal to stay on at Alabama. Saban now, six national championships with the Tide, tying Bear Bryant. He has seven overall, including the one at LSU, making him the winningest college football coach of all time in terms of national championships. And I think this is rather important because not only because it you know continues to make Alabama the ultimate program in the FBS, and you know con- continues to give them incredible recruiting advantages. But you know we talk about the the controversy between Saban and Jimbo Fisher and the NIL, the name, image, and likeness that controversy, but. Ultimately, a lot of guys are still want to, will still want to go to Alabama because it will give them the best chance to win. And of course, so many guys at Alabama, not necessarily the quarterbacks, but time and time again, Alabama has dominated the draft at pretty much every other position. Not to mention, this will also be rather significant that Saban is making sure that until he is, I think, 78 or 79, it's hard to believe that he's even, I think, 70 or 71 right now. He doesn't look it, for sure. But uh, that he will be secured in the Alabama job for that long, that will pretty much be an Alabama lifer. And on top of that, the fact that, you know, the, the Big Ten and the SEC are really taking away so many teams, and it seems like it's going to be a two-conference league, essentially, from now on, is, you know, you need to have your premier program still at its peak. And so that's very important. A couple more things I want to discuss. Uh, For one thing, big interesting thing here in New York this weekend, or here in the New York area this weekend, 
The New York Yankees retired Paul O'Neill's number 21. Now, I know that, and believe me, I've, I, I know there are, I even have friends and family who are Yankee fans and say that, you know, maybe, is he really worthy of getting his number retired? Now, I think there's a difference between getting your number retired by, you know, the average Major League Baseball team and getting your number retired by the Yankees. There's a higher standard, but even though Paul O'Neill, you know, he wasn't a homegrown Yankee, he's not a Hall of Famer, played nine years with the organization, and was never necessarily the best player uh, on the team, Paul O'Neill, really, his resume with the Yankees would probably get his number retired by most, if not all, other organizations. And so, it, it, it again... I think shows the standard of excellence that the Yankees have really had for you know the vast majority of their history, because there are even guys, you know, like Reggie Jackson. Even though Reggie Jackson is an all-time great player, and he won two World Championships with the Yankees, three pennants, and a World Series MVP, he ultimately only only played five years with the Yankees, and he spent more of his career with Oakland, but. It was still such a high quality within those five years that it does make some sense that he would have his number retired. Even then, there are some guys who have not had their number retired by the Yankees who maybe should. Guys like, for one thing, Dave Winfield, who spent 10 years out of his Hall of Fame career with the Yankees, played more with them than with any other team. He's a member of the 3,000 hit club, but of course, due to his... Very, very strenuous relationship with George Steinbrenner, even after his passing now, it's, it's, you know, it's still understood why maybe his number was not retired. You think of, they have a lot of Hall of Fame pitchers like Herb Pennock, uh, Wade Hoyt, Red Ruffing, Lefty Gomez. There were a lot of Yankees who do not have their numbers retired who are in the Hall of Fame, and there are a lot of Yankees who are not in the Hall of Fame and, and probably will not end up in the Hall of Fame, but still do have their number retired because of their importance to the franchise. O'Neill will be the latter. So O'Neill, besides his tenure with the Yankees, of course played much of his career with his hometown Cincinnati Reds. He was born in Cincinnati, still lives in the area. Won the World Series with them in 1990. He was traded to the Yankees in 1993 and played there until his retirement in 2001, played the bulk of his career with the Yankees. Of course, the maybe the highlight of his career was actually the very end when Yankee fans were chanting his name as he took the field, I think in the ninth inning of Game 5 of the 2001 World Series, knowing that regardless of whether the Yankees won or lost, the series would not be coming back to New York, and his retirement was probable, became very emotional at that, of course. Well, even though Paul O'Neill is not like a, a Derek Jeter or even a, you know, a Bernie Williams, Jorge Posada, Andy Pettit, Mariano Rivera, didn't have a lot of really, you know, it, it's kind of a, become a cliche kind of now, but signature moments. He's a guy who was very animated and brought a lot of life to that team and a lot of veteran leadership. So here is some of his resume with the Yankees. Of course, with the Yankees, over nine years, won four World Series titles, five American League pennants. They made the playoffs seven consecutive years. Probably would have been eight if not for the strike in 1994. 
The Yankees had the best record in the American League at that point, and of course, you know, even more importantly, the Montreal Expos had the best record in baseball, but uh, I digress. Four all-star selections. He had 100 or more runs batted in in four consecutive years. Over his career with the Yankees, he was not a 300 hitter for his career, but he hit 303 as a Yankee, 185 home runs, 858 runs batted in. That's an average of 21 home runs, 95 runs batted in, uh, an average of 34 doubles as well. So not bad numbers with the Yankees. I think it's fair to say he was a better player at, with the Yankees than he was with the Reds. Of course, that's you know also when you have incredible guys like Bernie Williams, Jeter, Posada, Tina Martinez, Joe Girardi, you know Tim Raines, Ricky Leday, David Justice later on, a number of players in that Shane Spencer, a number of really great players in there and a couple of Hall of Famers. But uh, in, in addition, he won the 1994 American League batting title. Now, he had only played 103 games before the strike, but he hit 359 in those games. Tony Gwynn that year actually hit, I believe, 394. People always talk about the what-ifs from that season. Tony Gwynn hits 394. Maybe he becomes the first to hit for to hit 400 since Ted Williams. Maybe the Expos finally get over the top. Maybe they don't move to Washington. But this is this was a, another one. 359 is still a very impressive average. He was also top 15 in AL MVP voting four times in five years. And for the postseason, he was a career 284 playoff hitter. But I'll, I'll give you a couple of specifics for a couple of his series. The 2000 World Series, where, of course, Derek Jeter won World Series MVP against the New York Mets, hit the, the leadoff home run in Game 4 that they very much needed to, to swing the momentum back their way, had the big throw to nail Timo Perez at the plate in Game 1. But Paul O'Neill in that series hit 474 with five runs batted in in five games played. He also hit 333 in the 01 World Series and was actually on second base before Tino Martinez's game-tying home run in Game 4. He had three home runs and six runs batted in in the 1995 ALDS, one of the great series ever, and maybe the best five-game series ever between the Yankees and the Mariners. It's you know the series that saved baseball in Seattle. You always think of the double by Edgar Martinez and or Martinez's grand slam in Game Four as well, and you know Ken Griffey Jr. popping his head out in Game Five. Some people might even forget that that was Don Mattingly's only playoff series, and then Jim Leyritz walk-off. But Paul O'Neill, three home runs, six RBIs. Yeah, and there was also the, the series, actually. Ken Griffey Jr. tied for the second most... It was tied for the most home runs in a playoff series to that point. Nelson Cruz has since broken it. He had six home runs in a six-game ALCS in 2011. Ken Griffey Jr. at that point tied... I think it was only Reggie Jackson's record at that point the record with five home runs in a single series. However, Reggie Jackson hit five homers in a six-game World Series. Ken Griffey Jr. hit five home runs in a five-game American League Division Series. And kind of overlooked in that was Paul O'Neill, three homers, six ribbies, and just one of the best single series in baseball history. He also, again in a losing cause, but had two home runs and seven runs batted in that five-game 1997 ALDS between the Yankees and Cleveland. Maybe the, the biggest moment 
perhaps besides that 0-1 World Series, if he does actually have a signature moment, is the running catch he makes running from left to right into the right center field gap, making a catch to secure a 1-0 win in Atlanta, Game 5 of the 1996 World Series. The Braves were the defending champions. The series was tied at 2. The Yankees had lost the first two games in Atlanta and then won, lost the first two games in New York and then won three games in Atlanta before closing it out in New York for Game 6. So a very a very nice accomplishment. I I honestly think you can make comparisons. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about, or a few weeks ago, about Keith Hernandez getting his number retired finally. And I think Paul O'Neill, Keith Hernandez, I would say, is probably is and should be in the Hall of Fame, or will be and, and should be in the Hall of Fame. Paul O'Neill, I don't, he's the Hall of Very Good. But I mentioned how Keith Hernandez was the one guy who had a lot of experience, who had won a championship before, came to a Mets organization that was kind of in disarray for many years, and then ultimately was a key veteran presence, a guy who had won the World Series in St. Louis. Paul O'Neill kind of was like that for the Yankees. None of these guys, Bernie Williams had been there for a couple of years, but you know, even once David Cohn got there in 95, these were, you know, none uh, you know, none of the most of these players had not won a championship before. Most of them did not have any playoff experience. And so again, it kind of like the other comparison, not baseball, but you know, not to say he wasn't the captain and he certainly did not certainly was not this good an athlete, but akin to Mark Messier coming into the Rangers, at least in terms of a leadership role, where it was a city desperate for a championship, desperately craving a championship, and an organization that had been at times in disarray, and Paul O'Neill was just a guy to change the culture in the clubhouse. Now, one last thing I one last thing I would like to mention before we go, and that is so the coaching staff for Team USA for the World Baseball Classic. Ken Griffey Jr. and Andy Pettit are among the coaches, so obviously they know what they're talking about. Two very smart guys and two very talented players in their own right. They've taught the game well. Uh, Mark DeRosa has been named the manager of Team USA. I have actually met Mark DeRosa. I've actually also met Paul O'Neill. They're both very nice guys, but I also know Mark DeRosa. He, you know, he's from the around here, actually, and he went to the same high school that my dad, my uncle, and my cousin all went to. And uh, ve- very nice guy, very intelligent, and uh, very personable, really knows his stuff. And so I obviously hired a great coaching staff. And it's going to be pretty cool to see the World Baseball Classic again. That does it for us this week. I sincerely thank you for your time and, and appreciate your listenership. And we'll see you again next time on Sports in the Waiting Room.